This is a Triple J podcast. Hello, welcome to this week's episode of Science with Dr. Carl. In this episode, we get stuck into some nitty gritty science questions like why bulls are so jacked when they just eat grass, the ins and outs of space navigation, and we finally find out whether we can sneeze and fart at the same time. I'm Ash McGregor. Let's get into it. It's time for Science with Dr. Carl. How are you going? Dr. Ash, lovely to be with you. Oh, lovely to be with you. You had a large weekend, so did I at Splendor in the Grass in Byron Bay. Well, I end up with a bit of laryngitis and I'll just sort of run through it for you. Yeah, please. It turns out that speaking is the most complicated muscular activity that any human can do. You see a gymnast at the Olympics, that's nothing because you've got to coordinate a whole bunch of things and the very part of that is the larynx and that's like a one-way valve that stops food from going into your lungs and vice versa and what it does is you've got a, a, a valve, mm. but it's not like it just sort of closes down to a circle. It's like the letter V. So imagine you've got the letter V that can open or close, mm. and the lips of the V, they've got a certain amount of fat, and they've got a certain amount of um, nerve and, and muscle in there, and, and they control what happens. And you can you know, do bad things to them, like getting them infected with a virus or a bacterium or pollution or maybe straining them by singing too much, too yeah. loud, going along with the music. And so that's where I am now with um, a bit of the laryngitis. So I'm apologising for that, uh, dear audience. Love you very much, but I had so much fun. How about you? Did you enjoy Splendor? Oh, absolutely. My sleeping pattern is all out of whack now, though. It's been some really late nights. There were nights where I went to bed and I remember, what was it, like mornings, the... The, the, I could hear roosters cockadoodle doing, and I was like, "I got to go to bed. This oh, is ridiculous." Oh, so this is when you haven't slept for the night. Well, mm, big there, there are times up. for too much fun. That's right. Sue me, though. What was your favourite act? Well, I fell in love with Peach's PRC, and I found out mm. that PRC does not stand for People's Republic of China, but Princess. Did you know that? I had no idea. I've actually always wanted to know because I knew it was her handle on social media, and I just thought, hey, I just threw, threw some uh, bunches of letters together. But well, Princess, that makes sense. Somebody could let us know. That'd like, be wonderful. Can... What's the magic number they should ring in on? 0439757555, if you know. Ah, we want to know. Absolutely. Should we get stuck into some science questions? To the audience. Absolutely. We've got Dr. Marina on the line here from the Gold Coast. Dr. Marina, what's your question? Hi, doctors. Um, So I just had a question about um, cat's pupils. And basically I was wondering why they have such a wide range of um, pupil dilation from going so round to like a line where you can barely see it at all. And does it affect Mm. um, their vision or their eyesight at all? Uh, cats have firstly got an extra layer, a reflective layer at the back of the retina. So what happens with you and me is that light comes in through the eyeball, through a round hole at the mo- uh, and they don't have a round hole. For us, it comes in through a round hole at the front and then lands on a layer called the retina, about 0.3 of a millimetre thick, wrapped around most of the inside of the globe of the eye. And then if it hits some of the retinal cells, it'll give off electricity and then it just vanishes into a black layer. But cats have got a shiny layer called the tapetum, T-A-P-E-T-U-M. So it reflects the light and then that way the light gets a second chance to stimulate a retinal cell and that way they've got twice the sensitivity for nothing just by having a reflective layer. They lose a little bit of resolution but they can see better. Then they are, here's a fancy word, crepuscular. 
So there's daylight. Yeah. There's nocturnal. And crepuscular is a word that you use to mean twilight or, or sunrise, you know, just that time. And if you see those rays radiating out of the sun, you can use this wonderful crossword word clue and say, oh, look at those crepuscular rays. Well, cats are a crepuscular animal. Not nocturnal, not, uh, not not daytime, but they do most of their hunting. And it turns out that having a vertical slit can, we think, and people are not sure, can increase the sharpness to make up for the fact they they get a bit of fuzziness from the light being bang, bounced off the back of their eye. Yeah, is, right. That makes know. sense. And is that the reason why, you know, when you're looking for your cat outside at nighttime and you're shining your torch and you see these eyes just like blare back at you, they bright eyes. Yeah. Is that that layer? That's that layer that you're seeing, the tapetum. Oh, crazy. Did that answer your question, Marina? Yes, thank you guys so much. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Dr. Zach on the line. What question have you got for Dr. Carl? My question is about decomposition. Um, Every day sort of for the last about three weeks when I've been driving home from work, I drive past a, um, a dead fox on the Monash freeway. But where it is, it's sort of up against a um, concrete barrier and right next, probably about less than half a metre from cars going past at 100k an hour. Mm. So there are no birds or animals that have been eating it and no insects. And so for the last sort of three weeks, the fox has looked exactly the same. And so my question is, if there are no um, animals or insects to eat away at something, how does a carcass decompose and how long does that take? Um, you're looking at uh, weeks to decades. So the bottom line is that, and he comes, this comes from a poem, nature is bloody in tooth and claw. And if you've got friends who do a lot of bushwalking, uh, every now and then they'll tell you the story how they were heading out for the day and they saw this dead bird at the side of the road and went on the path. And when they came back four hours later, it had been shifted and most of it had already been eaten by other animals. But you're picking, talking about a situation where animals are not being involved, where you've just got the insects. Now, the insects will end up there and the bacteria and, of course, a few fungi. And in a warm climate uh, for decomposition, you're looking at um, weeks to months. A cold, chill it down a bit, you're looking at years. And if you go into a cold climate where you can have ice, they can last for decades. And in a case of Otzi, the person who was found in the Alps somewhere in Europe, they lasted for four or 5,000 years because oh, wow. they were in ice. So um, internally, you're already uh, being eaten away. Um, in your case of a human, uh, you're carrying about two or 300 grams of bacteria in your gut and they're going to kind of go to town and start munching you from the inside. So when the Egyptians did the mummification thing, they removed all of the guts. So they do mm. a slice and just take out all the guts. But also the brain was a place where insects and um, bacteria, if, once they followed the insects in, would then cause rotting. So they would pull the brain out through, with a wire through the nose. Oh, right? But they, and so that way they could have the rest of it, the flesh. They kept it. And it was really complicated for the mummification thing. Um, we're talking 2,000 years before Christ, 4,000 years ago. They used materials from India. Right. So you had that whole Silk Road thing running all the way from 
China on the Pacific coast, all the way across Asia, Mediterranean, and across to Spain. You had that, that whole thing and with Egypt then jumping across um, the Mediterranean to Egypt. So they had some sort of trade 4,000 years ago, and we kind of think separately from that, that that trade was related to scientific secrets being swapped on how to predict eclipses, but that's another story. Yeah, right. But back to Zach's question, it all depends on size and, and temperature. temperature. Yep. Absolutely. Thanks, Dr. Zach. Okay. All right, thank you. No worries. we got Dr. Patty on the line. What question have you got for Dr. Carl? What's going on, doctors? Um, um, not much. My question is, I'm in Victoria and I'm, I'm looking at the sun and the moon, the moon right now. Mm-hmm. If I'm saying both, what's happening on the other side of the world? Ah, ah okay. This uh, Light travels essentially in straight lines and so they are seeing not the sun because they're in nighttime, but they do not have the moon in their sky right now. Uh, from the point of view of you on what appears to be a flat earth, the moon goes around once every month or month, that's how they mm-hmm. got the name, oh. 29 days, and the sun once every day. At the moment, we've got both of them on our side of the planet, uh, so on the other side of the planet, they're not seeing it. They're just seeing nighttime sky and they're seeing the stars. Oh, there you uh, go. Now, 24 hours a day, they're just in the dark. Well, only for 12 because oh, the, right. the, earth will, the, the sun will go around uh, very quickly, but the moon will go around more slowly. Oh, slowly. Uh, and, and, and it took the Greeks thousands of years to work this out, but other scientists must have worked it out. And, in fact, the Greeks were the first to work out that the thing you see in the sky in the morning, Venus, is the same thing you see at the end of the day. Venus again. And that then gave them hints about the solar system. So they were kind of working towards that knowledge. It's a very difficult question and good on you for raising it. Well done, Patty. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Patty. We've got Caroline MB on the line and you're from Armadale out there in the farmlands. you got a question about bulls. Yes. So we know protein builds muscle. That's the case. Bulls only eat grass. Why are they so tanked? Mate, how come a cow or a bull can have so much muscle if their only fuel is grass? Yeah, exactly. And the answer is there's a a microscopic amount of protein in the grass and they process through industrial grade quantities of grass. They have a mouth and then a stomach and then they've got three more stomachs. And whereas our stomach is a relatively, well, I won't say it's simple, but it's simpler. It just chucks in a lot of acid and then mushes it around. They've got four separate fermentation chambers. So Mm. we call them stomachs, but they're really fermentation chambers. And they react with the grass to turn the sugars in there into available energy. You can eat grass, you know, like growing out of the lawn all day. You won't get any energy out of it. It'll just come Mm. out the other end. They can eat it and get energy out of it. And they also are optimized to get extra protein. So whatever protein there is, they're going to hang on to it and they're just going to have to build it up slowly over a period of time. And um, the mutation that allowed us to drink cow's milk actually arose in Hungary about 7,500 years ago. And it had the advantage that at the end of a year, you could have got as much nutrition from the milk that the cow gave you as you would get from killing the cow. But you oh, wow. had, you had, you still had the cow, and um, it didn't compete with you for the same foods. So, how do they get their muscle by eating lots and lots of um, grass, and then the microscopic amount of protein just builds up, and they end up with lots of protein in their flesh. 
we're lucky. And we have to have four stomachs to do the same. If, if we wanted to do the same, we'd have four. So we've got an intermediate gut. So they've got a, a long herbivorous, which means plant-eating gut. We've got an mixed gut. And then at the other end, you've got animals that are meat eaters and they've got a very short gut, which means that they can eat rotting food. And before it gets a chance to cause food poisoning, it's out. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's an advantage for us to be able to eat rotting food because it smells bad. No, I agree. I don't think it just would not taste well, good at all. Caroline, thanks for your question. No, thank you, guys, and have a lovely day. Hey, and to you, Doctor. Hey, we've got Brayden on the line, and I was saying earlier, Carl, that you've been looking into some solar panel facts. Yeah. Brayden, what is your question? Oh, g'day, Dr. Carl and Dr. Ash. How are we going? Very well, thank you. Oh, that's good. Now, um, yeah, just got a question about the basics on solar panels and how it actually all works. Like, I'm, I feel like getting a bit nerdy on this Thursday, and I just want to know how it all actually, like, the science behind it. Mate, if you had asked me a week ago, I would not know. And I've been trying to understand it, and I ran into a Professor Anita Ho Bailey, mm-hmm. uh, and she is the person who's taking us on the pathway to double the efficiency of the solar panels on our roof. Wow. We're from 20% to 40%. It'll take a long time, but if we spend more money, we'll get there sooner. In fact, we're, we're doing a talk with her. We've booked the Sydney Town Hall. So look up Dr. Carl and friends, Sydney Town Hall, and come along on the 17th of August. And it works like this. Imagine an atom. Have you got that memory from school of an atom, which is like a mini solar system with the electrons trapped like planets? Yeah. Yeah? Okay, right. So, yeah, so you've got the, the lumpy bit in the middle mm-hmm. and then empty space and then you've got the planets going around or you have the electrons going around. They're called valence electrons and they've got a certain amount of energy. And you can have, say, in silicon, you've got a silicon atom and next to it you've got another silicon atom and another one. And in each case, the electrons are stuck to the individual atom that they're married to. Now, what you want them to do is become conduction electrons. This, thank you, Dr. Anita, Professor Anita, for educating me uh, in the last week. And the way you do that is you have incoming radiation. It turns out that the incoming radiation that will do that, it's, it has to jump from being married to the – the electron has to jump from being married to the atom to becoming free. Right. And, and the gap that it has to jump is called the band gap. And incoming light – in the near infrared has enough energy to do it. So that will then lift the electron up and then the electron is now free to roam. It'll fall down, but you've got to do things to let it roam and catch it. But the thing is you're only catching that little bit of light in the infrared and everything else in the red and the green and the yellow, you're just turning that energy into heat. And so what she's doing is getting six different materials that will pick up ultraviolet light and turn that into electricity. They'll use that energy to kick the electron to a higher level and then underneath that you've got another layer which will pick up the um, blue and then the yellow and the green and and, and each of the layers. Each layer is about the thickness of a hair and by layering these layers on top of each other they can get the efficiency up. So instead of having just one layer, you've got six layers and they can get the efficiency up from 20% to 40% and they can do it in a laboratory. The trick is now to do it with cheap materials, and they've discovered these cheap materials, um, and, and then to do it mass scale. So it's turning it from a laboratory thing into your roof. But you're using the energy of the incoming light to rip the electron off the atom, which usually is silicon, but it can be something called a perovskite. We can talk about that later. To get rip the electron off and jump it up to a higher level, and then you catch it. 
got Dr. Montana with us now. He's got a question about ammonia. What is it? So I was just wondering, uh, the two gases that make up ammonia, they're odourless. So why does ammonia smell so bad? Okay, so um, the formula, is it NH3 from memory? I think it is. Uh, hydrogen. NH3, and yeah. Nitrogen. Yeah. Okay, so nitrogen is odourless and hydrogen is odourless and they have a certain size. Okay, now here it comes for you. In pharmacology, it's a lock and key relationship. You've got receptors on your cells and if the drug fits exactly into that receptor, it triggers something. The same thing happens in your nose when you smell something. When nitrogen lands on the receptors high up in your nose, it's called the olfactory epithelium. Epithelium means a surface. Olfactory is a fancy word meaning smell. So when the hydrogen lands on the receptors on the million or so cells high up in your nose, nothing happens. When nitrogen lands on them, nothing happens. But the two molecule, the two atoms together, nitrogen and hydrogen, when you have four of them, so one nitrogen and three hydrogens, they have a certain shape. And that turns out to be able to land in some of the receptors in your olfactory epithelium and then that sends off the signal to your brain. And the whole science of smell is really complicated. So we can have chemicals that have got very similar shapes and they tend to have similar smell generating potential in your brain. And if they're very different, they tend to be different as well. So, uh, and by the way, there's a woman, and I did a TikTok on this for the ABC, who can smell Parkinson's disease oh, in a human right. being 14 years before the symptoms are evident. And we don't what? know how. Yes, she can smell Parkinson's disease in a person 14 years. Either go to the Dr. Carl TikTok or the ABC TikTok. It's, it's on each of those. Gosh, that's crazy. Jeez. So it's the, it's the fact that you've got a bigger molecule and it's got a different shape. Okay. That's what makes it smell. Mm. There you go, go. Montana. Every day is a school day. We learned something there. Hey, Dr. Carl, I've had a text come in. Yeah. Uh, Before we were talking about how, why do cows or bulls get so big when they only eat grass? How how, how do they turn grass into muscle? Absolutely. We've got a text in from Sam, who's a new grad vet, who said, just following up the question, um, the main con- contributor to their protein source is actually the massive population of microbes in their rumen. Is that the right word? Rumen that they digest, termed microbial protein. The protein source directly from feed is insignificant. Insignificant. Insignific- what was the word? Insignificant. Insignificant. It happens. It happens. Oh, I can see producer Lou yeah. laughing at me. Uh, compared to the protein obtained by their rumen microbes, a perfect symbiotic relationship that enables cattle to grow so large, yet only on a relatively poor nutrient source. But uh, okay, so ah, so there's nitrogen in the atmosphere and nitrogen in protein, and he's saying, I think that there's relatively little um, uh, uh, nitrogen in the grass, but there's nitrogen in the bacteria. Where do the bacteria Mm. get those nitrogen atoms from? Do they get it from the air? Hmm. Can, can you we'll have, to, we'll have ring to call Sam. Ring in. Ring, Sam, Sam ring prepare. In. We're going we're gonna to call you yeah, in we're a gonna second here. We're going to ring you. Hey. We need your answer. We know, you know stuff we don't know. Yeah, and we love to learn. Hey, we've got Kat here from Caranda. Caranda, Kat, Dr. Kat. Caranda. I've been up at Caranda. Have you? Is yeah. it lovely? Yeah. I, I took the um, Skytrain thing. Oh, It's Kat, amazing. Have you taken the Skytrain? 
Uh, no, I haven't. Oh. Yeah, locals never do anything. And, and in enough. Sydney, people don't go to the opera house. Yeah, you're never and, a tourist and you're yeah. in Sydney, yeah. are you? Okay, okay later on. Okay, Dr. Cat, what do you got for us? Good day, doctors. So I'm here with my mum, Heidi. So we go hiking a lot, and I had a question about dirt. So in different areas that we hike in, um, after maybe a week of no rain, some of it's dry, some of it's really mushy, and obviously you've got the dams, so they build up the water. So I was wondering about the dirt behind that. Why, why does some of it stay mushy and some of it not? Okay, you're, let's look at one extreme, which is sand. You go along a beach, it rains, the, the water goes straight through the sand, goes down until it hits the water table, which is at the level of the ocean because the grains of sand allow the water to run through free, and so there's no water pooling. At the other extreme, imagine you've got a rocky surface. Mate, if there's little bumps in there, the rocks want to stay there, the water will stay in those little holes in the dents in the surface and it's not going to drain away. It can't drain away. In between, you've got dirt. And underneath the dirt, you can have varying layers. If you have, for example, clay, uh, they call it a clay lens. And mm. uh, when farmers want to make uh, a dam... Clay is a really useful thing and they want to find out where it is and then they get the bulldozer driver to find the clay and they line the dam with clay. So I'm guessing that that's part of it. I am not – it's not a soil scientist because they deal more with the bacteria. It's not a geologist because that's too big scale. It's some sort of person who knows this stuff and I don't know the name of their speciality. Mm. I've failed. Text us in if you do know it. 043975745. I know this. You can't leave Dr. Carl hanging. I'm hanging, man. <laughs> hey, hey, Kat, did that answer your question? Yes. Oh, uh, yeah, a little bit. We do have clay around um, in the Barossa, so I definitely mm. think that's something to do with it. Yeah, and so you can get the water table being at different types, different heights, yeah. if it can be sort of held in a lens by the geography of a hill or a valley or something. So you can have a mm-hmm. dam here and another dam at a lower level and it won't automatically drain from one to the other. Hey, it's a good day to learn some science. We're here. We're in the science hour, ripping into your science questions. And before we got a text from Sam from Wagga about cows and how they eat grass, how do they get so big? Uh, Sam, you have the answer. Tell us, what is it? Uh, yeah, good morning, doctors. So basically the cows eat the grass to feed the microbes in their rumen. And then eventually, once this population gets big enough, they will digest the microbes and it's a protein in the microbial wall that they get, the cows get their protein from, not the grass itself. Ah, but where do the nitrogen atoms come from? Because if you've got... From the plants. So they'll, the plant, the bacteria will convert the nitrogen from plants, like particularly legumes and stuff like that, and then they'll convert it into essentially replicating themselves into a microbial population. Ah, so the, from nitrogen. so the nitrogen that is essential for protein comes from the grass, yep. but it needs the bacteria, the microbes, and uh, to do the transition to shift the atom, a- atoms into something, that the, the nitrogen atoms, which are essential. Uh, are the bacterial populations same or different in the four different... St- and do they have four stomachs? Was my memory right on that? Yeah, it's more so four chambers, I suppose you call it, but it's mainly the room and the main front one, which is their massive, it's like, you know, tens of litres... That's their main fermenting chamber. Ah, and I've heard, I've spoken to a farmer who told me that if you've got 100 cows growing, babies, uh, and one of them is not growing well, you'll go to one of the ones that's growing really well, and when it does a thing called rumination, 
and it pushes yeah. the cut up into its mouth and then swallows it again. While it's yeah. in its mouth, you reach in, grab a handful, and then shove it into the mouth of the cow that's not oh. growing, and you try to colonise that cow with a bacteria. Yeah. Fruit. Is, is that a true story? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, Can you tell us about that? Uh, adaptation and transformation, really. You're just grabbing a my, sample of microbial protein from another one and then put in this cow, which has got a poorly developed population, and hopefully it comes good from there. But there's enough nitro- there are enough nitrogen atoms in grass to eventually um, end up in the muscle uh, of the cow or the bull. That's yeah, the nitrogen- via the microbes. Via, via the microbes. the microbes. With no microbes, you're not going to get a healthy cow. Wow. Thank you very much. There you go. Hey, we got Busty here. You've got one about a bodily function. Tell me, Busty. <laughs> hey, guys. Um, no, I've just been pondering about um, sometimes when you go to the bathroom and you piss and you get this huge, huge shiver up your spine. Mm. Just wondering what the go is with that. Don't get it all the time. It's just here and there. Ah. Um, in, in the population, it's called the urine or the piss shivers. If you want to get really fancy and write about it in a medical journal, you call it post, that means after, micturition, which is the fancy medical word for urination. I don't know why. Post micturition. Then they go a bit overboard. Convulsion. Syndrome. Right. It's not a convulsion. I just have a shiver. I'm not lying on the ground convulsing away. And um, even today, we don't have a good answer. I've asked the urologists who deal with urine, and they say, "Don't we don't know." Ask the neurologists who work with nerves, and they then when I ask the neurologists, they say, "Ask the urologists." Um, oh, there's two main theories. One is that you're losing a small or a large amount of heat. And this causes the shiver by some sort of pathway, which they do not define. But if you're in a warm environment, it still happens. Mm. And then there's a whole bunch of other reasons, all related to different parts of the nervous system, the autonomic, the sympathetic, the parasympathetic, vasovagal, all sorts of stuff. And it puts me in mind of the old saying, if there's one uh, solution, it's probably correct. And if there's half a dozen, they're not. So Mm. at the moment... There's still no clear agreement between the urologist and the neurologist as to why you get this piss shiver. It is real. And here's something else we don't know. We do not know the molecular pathway by which anaesthetic gases work. We know how to deliver them to you in a way that you don't die um, and it's perfectly safe. We know how aspirin works. We don't know how anaesthetic gases work. So I think that fits in that category at the moment, Busty. But I haven't done any homework for about six months, so maybe I need to do some more homework on that topic. Oh, there you go. I'll Thanks, get a Busty. Tax orders for your car. Thank you so much for <laughs> making me do my homework. Thank you, Doctor Busty. <laughs> Thanks, Doctor Busty. Hey, we've got Tony here. Doctor Tony, well, Doctor Tony, you want to bust a myth? Uh, yes, yes. Actually, I've got two quick questions that you probably have answered off the top of your head, doctors. Uh, first of all, my, uh, the question is, um, is it possible to sneeze and fart at the same time? Okay, so um, what's happening when you sneeze is that you're building up the pressure inside your lungs. But that pressure also spreads to the, uh, as far down to the top of your legs. So you've got four main cavities above your legs and before your head. You've got one major cavity for one lung another one for another lung, another one for the heart, which is sort of nestled in between the lungs, and a big one for the gut. And if you increase the pressure in your lungs, which you do as you're doing a sneeze, that pressure spreads into your gut 
into the peritoneal cavity. And so you're sort of going, sneeze, and you're almost about to fart. You really want to go and have a poo. Your gut's full. It's all full. And you just need that little bit of extra p- pressure. Mm. And so at the same time as you sneeze, a little fart comes out. <laughs> it's normal. Don't worry. It's normal. It's normal. It's Don't normal. worry, Tony. Yeah. Thanks, normal. Tony. Hey, listen, oh, I want to I want to get on oh, to more people. We've got so many people on the line. We've got Dr. Violet here. Right. Dr. Violet, you have Hello. you have a plant question, something you saw on TikTok. Yes. Yes, that's right. Hello, doctors. Um, yes, yeah, so last, last night I was scrolling TikTok at 2 a.m., as you do, and um, some science guy came up and talked about plants and how they can actually hear, hear and see when people are standing next to them, um, even though they don't have eyes or ears. And it was something about mm. photosensitive receptors or something like that. And I was just wondering exactly how it worked because, yeah, I didn't quite watch all of it. Mm. Okay, so we have a very highly evolved eye and the squid's got yep. a better one. Uh, and then there's various models of eyes and in the plants there are zero eyes. There are no formed yes, no. structures, but they do need sunlight to do their photosynthesis photosynthesis thing. I won't say, try to say insignificant. That's too hard. So they try to do their photosynthesis <laughs> thing. And so they know even though they don't have a central brain, mm. that they are alive and the sun is shining on them. And when a cloud comes wow. next to them, there's less photosynthesis uh, happening. And if you stand next to them, you're interfering with the amount of light in their environment. And they know that, but not with a proper lensing system. Now, they don't have ears either, but when you speak, vibrations go through the air. And if you get a sheet and just hang it on a line and then talk in that direction, you can see your airwaves. If you talk sideways, you can see your airwaves making it ripple. And they've got a sensitive system that works like that. So they can pick up vibrations in the air. So they don't have eye and ear organs, but they can, to some degree, sense. Don't believe everything you see on TikTok, but do follow me on TikTok and you'll be able to see how much so I'm just, a big fan just of to confirm, Just to confirm, yes. Dr. Carl, um, yeah, loved your work at Splendour as well. Um, love seeing you dancing yeah. on TikTok. Um, but also, um, does that mean that plants are somewhat sentient? That's a different thing. Um, <laughs> and that's a, I, I think that's like a to be a conversation. There's a lot right, going on. Okay, yeah. but, but definitely they can t- sense speech and light. Yes. They can talk to each other via a network of um, mushroom or fungi hyphae, H-Y-P-H-A-E. Wow. I've done a story, look up ABC Dr. Carl and Wood. Wide Web, Wood, W-O-W-O-D, Wood Wide Web, and there's a story about plants talking to each other. All right. Thanks, Dr. Oh, Violet. We're going to do Dr. one Violet. last one very quickly. Andrew and Port Ferry, is there – finish the sentence, sorry. I don't want to read it out for you. Dr. Andrew, what is it? I wanted to know, morning, doctors, is there a up and down in space? No, there's no up or down anywhere. And the reason that they said that they said that the Earth is up in the Northern Hemisphere is that's where most of the humans are on Earth. And that's because that's where most of the land is. So there's some sort of territorial imperative. There's more of us here, so we're more important. So we're up. And, and so, but in space, there's definitely no up or down. There's no preferred direction. I'm sorry. Oh, there you go. It's there all, you go. It's all democratic. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Science with Dr. Carl. And hey, if you missed it, head to the Triple J socials. You can see Dr. Carl break down the science that happens within the Barbie and Oppenheimer movies, get you ready to go into the cinema and really debunk some cinematic decisions. 
I'm Ash McGregor, usually the host of Home and Hosed on Triple J. Thanks for having me along and a big thanks to Lou Hill for producing this episode. We'll catch you next time. Dave Marchese here from the Triple J Hack team. Hey, if you love Dr. Carl's podcast like I do, you might enjoy the Hack podcast as well. Each day we bring you the news that matters to you, from the latest science on climate change to what's happening in politics and news around the world. The Hack Podcast. It's your daily fix of the news you need to know. Get it wherever you're listening now.